was really special. So the faculty at MIT, you know, are great, very accomplished, tops of their fields. And, and yet somehow there was a culture of like a priority is advising uh, our students. In this week's episode of The Mixtape with Scott, I had the pleasure of sitting down to talk with a professor at Brigham Young University, whose name also starts with Brigham, only his name is Brigham Franzen. Brigham is a labor economist and an econometrician in the Brigham Young uh, Economics Department. And I knew of Brigham first because of a paper he'd written on the econometrics method, instrumental variables, and an application of it called the leniency design a paper called Judging Judge Fixed Effects that was making a lot of the rounds about a year or two years ago. Um, I discuss it in my, a little bit of it in my book, but I also knew about some of his work on regression discontinuity design. And then I more recently knew of his work on machine learning and instrumental variables. He's a, he's a person I just keep having to, uh, I keep enjoying learning more about his work and, and I enjoy reading uh, him. He's a young econometrician who I think does a lot of interesting work in the area of causal inference that's usually dead center on topics that applied people like me are having to think a lot about. And uh, those econometricians are always really interesting people to me because the work they do is always weirdly, strongly practical, strongly relevant to regular uh, applied people, which is not always the case with econometrics in general, but is the case with Brigham's work. Today, we discuss growing up just outside of Los Angeles in a big family uh, with a love for the outdoors, uh, growing up wanting to be a scientist, going to college, working closely with a pillar in the Brigham Young uh, Economics Department named James McDonald, who mentored uh, Brigham as well as uh, many other students uh, in the department that went before him. We talked about mentorship in general, its philosophy at, Bri at BYU. Uh, his own philosophies about it, what he learned from Dr. McDonald, and also the philosophies of, of mentorship that ultimately shaped him when he went to graduate school at MIT. Um, but we also talked about his research, a lot of the work that he's done on distributions of heterogeneous treatment effects and bounding them, as well as the possible value that machine learning has for causal inference in general, and his thoughts about that. Uh, full disclosure, though, I also have asked Brigham to teach a workshop at Mixtape Sessions on machine learning and, and causal inference. So if you found Brigham's thoughts about this, about any of this interesting, you might come check it out. Uh, thanks again for tuning in to the podcast. I'm Scott Cunningham, the host. Okay, well, this week um, is my pleasure to have uh, as a, a guest uh, on the, the Mixtape podcast, uh, Brigham Franzen. Uh, Brigham, thanks for being on the, the podcast. You bet, Scott. Thanks for having me. So for the sake of the, the listener, can you just tell us uh, a little, uh, you know, your name and what your job title and who, who pays you for your, your day, who pays you for a living? Sure, yeah. I'm Brigham Franzen. I am uh, an associate professor at Brigham Young University. They, you know, gave me the naming rights as part of the deal. When, that was part of the deal. They hired me. 
So uh, yeah, I teach uh, economics at BYU. I've been here for about 10, yeah, 10 years now. Um, uh, love teaching and I do research in econometrics, causal inference, also some uh, labor economics and health economics. Awesome, awesome. Great. Okay. Well, so so tell me where did where did you where did you grow up anyway? So I grew up in La Cañada, Flintridge, which is a small town about 15 minutes north of downtown Los Angeles in Southern California. Oh wow! I've never even heard of that town. Most people haven't. So what is it? It's a suburb of Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, it's a suburb of Los Angeles. Um, and uh, probably the last like truly small town left in Southern California. It was a, a pretty awesome place to live, just right on the edge of the San Gabriel Mountains, north of the Oh, city. wow. Well, so it was awesome. So what was awesome about it? What was your childhood like? So I, I really looked out my childhood. I have five brothers and five sisters. Oh, wow. So I'm, the, I'm the fourth, but the oldest boy. So uh, yeah, life was never boring. Um, we were a pretty outdoorsy family. Like I said, we, we lived right on the edge of the mountains there in La Cañada. So, you know, we spent our spring breaks and summers camping and hiking um, all over the West from the Canadian Rockies down to camping out on the beach in Mexico. Mm. Um, and uh, so most of us in my family growing up are some combination of avid long distance runners or mountain oh. bikers or or soccer players so kind of outdoors things was a was a big part of my growing up wow wow what's your best what's one of your top childhood like vacation memories so my one of my favorite vacation memories was camping out in yellowstone national park went there actually went there a couple of times but um one of the times we were there it just poured on us <laughs> every single night it just rained so hard, which sounds like it'd be miserable. You know, waking up with your sleeping bag completely sopping wet uh, doesn't sound like much fun, but somehow it was. You know, we were all there, we're all in it together. And mm. so I'll always remember camping out in the rain in Yellowstone. So y'all are really tight, your family. Yeah, we are 12 of you. Close. There's there's so many of us, but um, but we are really close. We we always mm. have been. Wow. So what'd your dad do? What'd your mom and dad do for a living? Uh, so my dad was and is a lawyer. He's a business lawyer. Uh, he has a practice there in LA. Uh, I think in his heart, he wishes he were still uh, working the farm where he grew up. Oh. Um, so that's my dad. And my mom's full-time job was making sure all of us survived to adulthood and, you know, uh, didn't burn the house down. She was also really active in volunteering in our community and church mm. and Girl Scouts and school board and things like that wow wow uh did you do boy scouts yeah i did boy scouts i'm an eagle scout you're an eagle scout yep i'm an eagle scout wow we're, we're all the are all the are all the brothers eagle scouts uh you know uh i think three out of the five are eagle scouts you know we got a couple of wayward or well so i got five brothers so there's six of us boys i think three out of the six are eagle scouts and the other three are didn't make it the other three didn't make it. Oh away man, that's yeah. that's rough. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so when you were a kid, what did what did you? Well, so let me ask you real quick before we get it before I forget. So so uh, of your of your mom and your dad, what are their favorite? Um, what are their favorite activities? Their outdoor activities. You said of those long distance running and everything. Yeah. So my my dad, he's the one who uh, he and my older sister kind of got everybody into long distance running. So my dad 
uh, would run the LA marathon every mm. year. He's a, he's a marathon runner. Um, my mom loves hiking. So she's the one who's really passionate. Oh, about she's the outdoor bike. And hiking. Yep. Your dad, he doesn't do trail running. You know, he does now he's gotten into trail running now, like in his, in his older years, he kind of was strictly road racing, yeah. marathon, mm-hmm. but, um, now I think like three times a week, he goes on like, a probably a seven, eight mile trail run involves like 3000 feet of elevation gain in the mm-hmm. morning. So, um, yeah, he loves it. Yeah. Yeah. Those long distance runs, I, I, I've run two marathons and those, those long distance runs for me were just like, they were really very spiritually meaningful parts of my life when I was able to do them. I mean, there's something weird, you know, they, the, and I'm not even, I mean, obviously people talk about, you know, runner's high, but that's not even really it. It's when you're out there for a long stretch of time, it's just, it's just really beautiful uh, feeling. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I love it. I love being out there, um, you know, whether it's on a long mountain bike ride or on a run. And there's something, I don't know what it is. I, I think there's something very human about like, um, you know, like pushing yourself. Like yeah. when you reach those limits, like you kind of confront something basic about yourself and it it's powerful. Yeah, you know, it's a different deal. This is what always was kind of, the thing about long distance running is like you, well, like when you're not in shape and you start running, there's like a different kind of pushing yourself that you kind of push through. You've probably always been in shape, but like, like when you've, when you're going from being like sort of on the, you know, couch to 5k kind of thing, you like push yourself. And it's like, it's a different kind of painful. Cause it's like not really very pleasant, but on the long distance run, you're actually in really good shape. You're like in great, you're in great shape and you're pushing yourself and it's a completely different feeling because you're not really necessarily about you. I mean, sometimes you are about to collapse for sure, but it's like, it's weird how you can continue to run for, for a long time in, in, in a lot of pain, but, but actually kind of enjoy it. Yeah. It's weird pain that you enjoy. Yeah. It's, yeah pain that you enjoy. Know, it reminds me like, you know, it might, maybe it's something like deeply evolutionary, you know, like, uh, in our dna you know our, our ancestors you know persistence hunting on the savannah but yeah something about it something about it like even though it's hard it's painful like uh i still love it yeah so so which one are you do you like now you mentioned uh riding bikes so is that your favorite oh yeah i would say um i would say mountain biking is probably my favorite now i'll um i still run so like my kids have gotten into running mm-hmm. so uh, and mountain biking, but so I'll run like my daughter, my 11 year old, she really wants to do a 10 K. So she and I are training for that 10 K together. Oh. Uh, last year, my 13 year old want to do a half marathon. So, uh, he and I trained together. We did a half marathon. So I'll run, I run with my kids and I love it, but if yeah. I'm just going out on my own, then I grab my bike. You grab your bike yeah, and you go along, you go for a long time. Yeah. Usually a couple, you know, two or three hour ride. Yeah. Mountains around here. Yeah. Well, so when you were a kid, you know, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like in high uh, school? Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to be a scientist. That's what uh, I was wondering. Yeah. Yeah. But, but not the kind of scientist I eventually became. Um, I wanted to be an astrophysicist. Mm-hmm. Um, and that started when I was 11. So when I was 11, I found a book on the bookshelf. So our family room, 
like every square foot of space in our family room was lined with books, like on everything. My my dad is a book addict. He just buys, mm. my mom hates it, but if he sees a book, he buys it. Um, yeah. But anyway, I found a book on our shelf. It was called Black Holes and Time Warps. It was by Kip Thorne. So he was a physicist at Caltech, which is just a few minutes down the road from La Cañada, where I grew up. Oh. Um, and he's the one, so Kip Thorne, he's the one who had that famous bet with Stephen Hawking on whether black holes exist, maybe, uh, I think. In oh, yeah, I know the name. That okay. movie about Stephen Hawking, like, I think it, he was in that, and his character was in that movie. Anyway, so he wrote this book. I found out when I was 11, and I, I was just obsessed with astrophysics. Oh, wow. Uh, and that obsession lasted uh, up until junior year in college at BYU when I finally realized that I wasn't smart enough to cut it, to cut it as an astrophysicist. Mm. Uh, so that's when I turned to economics. You turned to economics at Brigham Young as a junior, something happened. What is there like a, there's like a particular course or something that, that, a, that a physics major might hit or what, what's the, what's the, where do you feel that, where did you feel the ceiling? Yeah. So, um, so my first exposure to economics was in high school. So I took AP econ in high school and I hated it. I thought it was the mm. worst thing ever. It was like, I think basically the whole course was like memorizing the components of GDP. I was like, oh this, yeah, this yeah. is so lame. So that's what mm. I thought economics was. Mm. So like, it was not on my radar at all. So yeah, I was a physics major. Um, sophomore year uh, at BYU, so I was, you know, doing physics, but I had, and I had like an extra spot in my schedule. So I decided to take Econ 110. Uh, mm. That's kind of our, our introductory economics class. At BYU fulfilled the GE requirement. So I took that class and I was blown, I was blown away. It was nothing like my high school economics class. Like I found it super, super fascinating. Like the idea that um, you could think about like human decision making and societal decision making, like in a rigorous mathematical framework, yeah. really appealed to me. I was comfortable with the math from physics, right? But applying it to like human questions. Uh, I found really fascinating. So took a couple of more econ classes. Who's the teacher so, who, who taught you that class? So my very first economics class was from Larry Wimmer. Um, okay. He's, he's since retired, but he was kind of one of the OG like economists here at um, um, here at BYU. Yeah. Uh, so he taught me my first econ class. So after that, I took a couple more. Um, and then uh, I I uh, got involved with doing RA, like uh, research assistant work with James McDonald. Yeah. He's sort of the, the econometric forefather here at, mm. he was Whitney Newey's undergrad advisor. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, that's James McDonald. I was, I was really lucky to have he's still there? him here. You know, he's, he's, he's uh, technically retired, but he still comes in and still works with students and is still working on research stuff. Yeah, so um, wait, you were his RA. You took I, econometrics. So you like you 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 so you take that class from, I forgot the professor's name that that took your the, Wimmer. yeah Wimmer and you're like you're sort of seeing for the first time something about behavior human behavior that you hadn't seen in that that uh, AP class so it's like micro yeah yeah it was really micro that kind of like really sparked it. I guess AP econ in high school was mostly macro. You know, right. now I've learned to tolerate macro too, but it was really the like microeconomic frameworks that uh, kind of like opened my mind to how powerful economics could be. Was it, was so, I mean, 
I mean, it could go either way. It's like, you know, a person that wants to be a scientist as a physicist, I could, you know, you could tell me a story about how that person saw macro and that was like, so similar, you know, but what, what, what's the common thread between micro and your passion for that Kip Thorne stuff? Is there some kind of theme that's like not obvious to somebody else, but that's obvious to you? Yeah. So I think the common theme is like both get at what feels like something very fundamental. So when you study physics, mm. you, you really get the feeling that you're kind of uncovering like fundamental laws of like the way the universe works. Mm. And that kind of purity in physics is what attracted me to physics. And microeconomics, you know, is a little bit the same thing. At least that's what it aspires to, to kind of get at the, the, the fundamental like drivers of how humans and societies make the decisions that they make. So I think that's the common thread that they're, they're, they're really trying to, trying to get at kind of the fundamental forces that, right. that drive the way things work. Yeah. So what you were like, so you're, you're you thinking in terms of like utility and like the objectives of a person, those kinds of things were, that's is right. that, yeah. is what, that what sort of the, the stuff? What are the underlying objectives, you know, and even, uh, you know, even a utility function is kind of an abstraction, like yeah. in, in one of my undergrad classes taught by Val Lamson, you know, we kind of took the axiomatic approach mm. to preferences. So this is even deeper than utility functions. It's, yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. Like when you, when you kind of lay things out in terms of like the axioms then totally. you, and then and you really feel like, okay, I'm, I'm here at the fundamentals. And yeah. 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 That was really yeah. I taught grad micro at Baylor for 10 years and, and, you know, you, that you, you have to start at those, those axioms of choice and, build up from there and um but we never i've never spent nearly as much time in the axioms of choice as you might get from a from what i've seen of some pure theory courses will do and um it's deep and wonderful i mean it's really interesting the amount of work that's gone in by economists before us on thinking so deeply about that and what they were at what we've been able to construct from it um yeah, it, it is pretty amazing yeah so uh so uh, Dr. McDonald, so you, you graduate in 04 and you basically publish as an undergrad. It looks like I saw on your Vita, you've got an 06 paper on lasers, which is two years after you graduate, but you got this 04 paper with McDonald on in journal of income distribution. Uh, just think about that second one. Is that common at Brigham Young to publish with your, with your professors? Yeah, that's, that's one of the remarkable things about, about BYU um, it's a very undergraduate focused institution. There, mm -hmm. there are some graduate programs, but it's, it's really focused on, on undergraduate education. And so the opportunities that undergrads can get at BYU to be involved, uh, in the research process, even to co-author, um, is, it is common at BYU, but I, you know, I've come to see that it's, um, it's pretty extraordinary, like in terms of other undergraduate research institutions, where maybe most of your classes are taught by grad students, um, uh, you know, or things like that. So I, I, that is one thing that makes BYU a, a remarkable place: is the degree to which, as an undergrad, you can be involved in doing real research. Yeah. Um, but, so that. Uh, but this was like know, econometrics. Yeah. So the, this was like uh, with, with Professor McDonald's, a paper on measurement error. So what was this? Did this come out of a, how did this, how did, what's the origin of that, of that paper? 
Yeah, so this, this came out of um, kind of I got involved doing uh, RA work for James McDonald. And uh, his, the, his kind of specialty, the mark, you know, he's, um, what he was known for was like using flexible distribution functional forms um, to like, you know, to, to capture various features of, of distribution. So including the income distribution. Oh, um, wow. And so, so I, I, I got interested in econometrics. It was sort of like from as a physicist coming into economics, it was a really natural point of entry. So I mm. started doing RA work for him. And honestly, like, um, you know, he kind of made it his calling, I think. So he, he made a lot of contributions. You know, he's published in Econometrica and things like that early in his career. But he kind of made it his calling to like mentor or, sh or shepherd us students and, and like work with us really, really closely and, mm. and let us see the whole research uh, process from, from beginning to end. So it was, it was really a privilege to work so closely with James McDonald and, and kind of see, see how it works, see what the research process is, learn that I, you know, learn that I loved, I got to see what it was like, learn that I loved it and, and kind of decide to go that way. In my well, career. since you were you've been on both sides of the fence, you were a student that that wrote an econometric kind of an applied econometrics paper with him. And now you are a professor and an econometrician. How would you now he's kind of stepping back? What was his production function that allowed him to both be in the position of a, an autonomous researcher and bring about publishing with the students because it's easy to sort of aspire to it but there is a production function involved you know it, it requires kind of a lot of multi-steps and, and i don't think any of us get trained in it so what do you, what do you think he did exactly so what what he did was um he had like a, a pretty interesting approach so i don't know if you've ever seen uh like sheep dogs but sheep dogs mm. are kind of big around here like um, but the way sheepdogs are trained is like, okay, there's the, there's the shepherd, uh, you know, the, per the human, and he's got a sheepdog, but there's always like a master sheepdog and an apprentice sheepdog. And oftentimes, uh -huh. like, the master sheepdog will be training the apprentice sheepdog. So Jane McDonald usually worked with two RAs at a time, and they would kind of overlap. So I would work closely with James McDonald and also the RA who preceded me, um, mm. who happened to be Bob Turley. He, he went on to get his PhD at Harvard. Um, and then, and then once Bob graduated, then I was the master sheepdog, you know, RA and, and I helped to, uh, kind of train up the next one. So he kind of, um, he, he kind of get, which was great. Cause as you know, like when you teach something to somebody else, that's when you really learn it. So yeah. like I would learn from, from him and, you know, from the other RA, but then when I had a chance to help train the new RA who was up and coming. That's when I really learned it. And so that's, mm. that's kind of how he operated. He always had two RAs at a time, uh, worked really intensively with us. You know, I'm, it was a- What does that mean, worked really intensively? What was he doing? So like we would meet every day, you know? Every like day? We would meet, we would meet every day, every afternoon we'd meet. And mm. uh, I kind of given an, up, given an, an, an update on what I found. We'd talk about bottlenecks. Um, He'd help me, you know, help me through them. So bottlenecks like, on like approved bottlenecks coding, and like you know, coding maybe, thing. Yeah, maybe some coding wasn't giving what I expected, or some results looked mm. funny. And I, you know, I've been banging my head against it. And 
and we'd talk through it and he'd, you know, point out, okay, try this and try that. Mm. So um, just the sheer amount of time, you know, and he, he did devote a lot of time to it. It, it, I, I have no doubt that he could have done what we were doing in like a third of the time. Yeah. He made that part of, part of what his contribution was going to be to economics. Mm. And, um, uh, and he chose to do that. So, uh, and I'm grateful. It made a big difference in my life. So, so, so do you have a production function that is different than his in terms of like mentoring? And yeah, also, so I, I, also, before I even say that, uh, do you think of yourself as a mentor? I aspire to that. I'm, uh, Jamie McDonald uh, is, is really, um, he made a big difference for me here at BYU. And mm. I aspire to make that kind of difference for, uh, for my students. And so my, my model is similar. I usually work with you know, a relatively small number of RAs, like one or two, and mm. um, try to work, work closely, closely with them and kind of give them the same sort of support and mentoring that I got from James McDonald. I'm, you know, not there yet. Those are big shoes to fill, sure, but sure. Um, that's what I try to do. But those time inputs, those frequent time inputs are a part of the production function of mentoring uh, uh, that leads to publishing. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think there's no, there's no substitute for, uh, for just putting the time in and, you know, mm. sitting down together and thinking through things. Mm. Wow. So, so then you, you graduate in 04 and you end up going to MIT was, was there, uh, you know, it's so like I write, you know, the, the thing is to, to me, uh, going to MIT, it would just have, just to have gotten that acceptance letter in the mail. I can only imagine in my mind, I just, you know, I'm imagining you as a college student, how that would have just been so meaningful. Cause you know, MIT is just like the, University of Alabama of college football. It's just it's like a, you know, an incubator of the future of economics. So I, I was wondering, what was it like to get that at, you know, what, what were you thinking about in terms of what you wanted to do with your life and what, what was it, what were your thought processes around MIT and then getting in? Yeah, it was, it, it was a really cool place. And when I, when I found out that I was accepted and that it would, I would have the option of going there, like, um, it, it was really meaningful. And I, uh, again, I attribute that to James McDonald. Um, really? Is he an uh, alumni? Was he an alumni of MIT? No, he didn't go to MIT. He didn't go to MIT. He went to Purdue. But um, oh. so like I say, he, he had been Whitney Newey's uh, advisor when Whitney Newey was an undergrad at BYU. And Whitney Newey, of course, uh, Wait, you know, uh, had been the chair. McDonald was Whitney Newey's advisor? Uh, yeah, James McDonald was Whitney Newey's advisor when Whitney Newey was an undergrad at BYU. Get out of here. So, wow. I didn't catch you yeah, said that. I thought it was the other way around. Okay. No, no. So, um, so that was, that's, that was a pretty, oh, that's incredible. Connection. And, and so just having, so kind of having that kind of connection between BYU and MIT, and there've been a, a string of other, um, uh, people going from BYU to MIT. So, yeah. um, so Chris Hansen, he was out of BYU, went to MIT. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Curl is one of our older faculty. He was at MIT. And mm-hmm. then there have been a few others. My same year, there, uh, Randall Lewis. Um, but is uh, it the James McDonald? Is it the James McDonald played kind of a, it, he's it a big is. part so of that conduit? The James, 
It is the James McDonald. He's the common thread. So oh, get out of I, here. I attribute, it, I attribute it all to him, but I, I benefited from that. Wow. Um, That's got to be pretty heavy on you guys that are there now, kind of feeling like, I mean, I'm just imagining you're sort of, if you all sit around and think, okay, McDonald, uh, we owe a lot to McDonald, uh, but look at, look at what he did. He spent a ton of time with students. He like invested in the, I mean, I'm, is that like, that's kind of way that's got to, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would think that would weigh heavy on a lot of the faculty there that, that the, the key to, to investing in these students is way beyond just prepping these classes. It, it is, um, it is that, that definitely kind of what, what he did and he wasn't the only faculty member who did that sort of thing really did kind of set the culture of what our department here is about mm. um, part of it part of it's self-serving so because of the nature of BYU it's a, it's a church affiliated university mm -hmm. and for the most part uh, we hire um, you know faculty who are members of the church so that's that's a pretty small hiring pool yeah and so and so we, we really have a vested interest in oh, yeah. mentoring mentoring our students sending them to good places so um, sure uh, you know it's 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 uh, it's in our interest as well uh, mm. to help kind of grow the future of our department. Our students may well become our colleagues one day. And Absolutely. That. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Brigham Young is, uh, is kind of like in that space of like Dartmouth, uh, doesn't have a PhD program and just has this really impeccable, uh, highly impactful faculty in terms of their research productivity. Uh, it's 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 just phenomenal, you know. And I think of you as part of that. That's that's great. I didn't realize it was McDonald that, or he he was a big part of that. It's yeah, really that's cool. right. He was. He wow. Was. So you got in, and so I mean, you must have been just so. What, so what was it? What was the first? What was you know the, your first impressions like of the school or the department? Uh, so MIT was a really cool place. Um, part of it is my like my peers, my fellow grad students um, were like my cohort. And the cohorts above and below who we interacted with a lot, like one, they're all crazy smart, yeah, um, and uh, and so supportive. So some like, and it's, it's maybe like this everywhere, but um, such supportive fellow grad students, so smart, and kind of people come from different backgrounds. You know, we had students from Europe, students from South America, students from yeah. Asia. How um, big's the cohort? How big's the co? How big was your cohort? So Twenty. I think 24 students is that a, and they basically all grad or is it a large is there much attrition no there's not much attrition huh. um and y'all so don't have the, the model right not, the model does not let's admit a bunch of people and then right. we know them out it's, it's not the chicago it's model. people it, yeah i think chicago maybe like is is, is changing that over time that's that, historically that was chicago. their model though right chicago yeah, would let it a lot and then sort of took a lot of chances on a lot of, i mean they had a reason for it they took a lot of chances at the margin on students that, and then they would see, but like, um, but you guys didn't have prelims, right? Uh, so we didn't have prelims. Nope. There are no prelims. We had, we had general exams like at the end, but there were no qualifying exams, you know, huh. the first year to know people out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was MIT's model. It was, it was very supportive. So my fellow grad students were, were fantastic. Mm. Um, and then, and then the faculty, obviously, and it's, and this is something that, you know, it, it um, was really special. So the faculty at MIT, you know, are great, very accomplished, tops of their fields, and and yet 
somehow there was a culture of like a priority is advising uh, our students and right. spending time with them. And um, again, it's about time. Like it's, it's not, uh, you know, it's like meeting several times a week with, with your advisors and spending, yeah. they would devote a good chunk of their time to advising students and, uh, you know, helping them, helping them succeed basically. And that it's was, in the DNA really of the school, right? It's in the DNA of the department. Cause I think I heard, I read once I thought that, that, that the originator of that is kind of Paul Samuelson, that he had sort of, when he helped start the department, it just sort of had such a strong focus on mentoring of the, uh, like mentoring. Is that, is that accurate? Or have you heard that too? I, I think, I think that yeah, that's my understanding as well, that Paul Samuelson kind of from the beginning, he's the, he sort of was the one who created MIT economics. Yeah. And uh, just from the beginning kind of instituted that culture of we're going to, we're going to prioritize advising grad students mm. and it persists you know I, i'm not an organizational behavior person but like somehow that culture seems to persist and make a difference well so what did it look like in your personal life what did it what did what did that how would you describe what that looked like to someone who's an economist but has never been to mit what what, what do you think is the the you know the salient features of what it was like for you of finding so, a professor and getting invested in and all that stuff yeah, so the way it worked for me was, so, you know, first semester, uh, you know, doing coursework, I took a labor economics class from Josh Ingris, and uh, I think I think the faculty must kind of be, be looking for students that they can connect with one way or another, and so mm. I was interested in labor economics. I was also interested in mountain biking, and yeah. Josh is a, is a very avid and skilled mountain biker, and so actually our first interaction kind of outside of class was, hey, let's go for a ride. So we started mountain biking. We mountain biked, you know, once or twice a week, all through mm. you know, my, my first year. And when you're out on a ride, you're talking about research. I'm asking him about what he's doing. Um, he was working on a book project at the time, it became mostly harmless econometrics. Oh, yeah. Um, and, I've heard of that uh, book. So, you remember that book? I yeah, saw sure. something on the internet about it. <laughs> so, yeah, I kind of, uh, so he said, you know, he, I asked if I'd be interested in kind of helping out with some uh, RA stuff on that book. And ah. that's, that's just how it happened. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you know, um, kind of transitioning a little bit, uh, I could, I had like even more questions I wanted to ask you about, but you know, I, I volunteered this semester. So interesting, ba Baylor, where I'm a professor, we've taught uh, since the, the school's founding uh, continuously every year, this history of economic thought class. It was taught by Judge Baylor, the president, the first president and founder but then my colleague retired and it was gonna be orphaned and i've all i kind of come from a, i'm the opposite of you you came from physics i came from english and literature and i just wanted i didn't have an econ in my background before graduate school so i volunteered to teach it and like learn all these stuff i didn't know anything well it's like it's been really interesting like everything i do about adam smith was um the invisible hand stuff you could kind of fit on a bumper sticker, you know, it's like mm -hmm. invisible hand and like, uh, you know, markets and all this stuff. But I did not know uh, how interested and concerned he and the other classical economists were in um, labor. They were, he was in particular very concerned about workers and capitalism. And I just, you know, was kind of thinking, you know, why do you study topics in labor? Why, why, why is it that you think 
uh, labor economics is a topic that is worth your time? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So I've also been impressed. You know, when I go back and read Adam Smith, there's a there's a lot there. You know, mm -hmm. amazing. Um, so labor for me, my interest in labor is a little bit like the um, it stems from uh, like partially the stuff I would I did with James McDonald when I was an undergrad on distributions. Mm. And, you know, he was interested in like, you know, mathematical, flexible, functional forms for distributions. And I find myself being really interested in the, the distributions of outcomes across people. You know, we spend, you know, a lot of time, like our typical applied work, you know, estimates average effects. Yeah. Um, and I find, I found myself wondering, well, what's like, what's, what is that average effect masking? It could be masking right. very different experiences for different people. And so that was my, that was kind of my entry into labor questions and specifically unions. Um, you know, I, it was probably my first year labor economics class at MIT. We talked about this famous um, uh, regression discontinuity study by, um, by DiNardo and Lee, you know, where they use union elections. Yeah. And, you know, they famously found kind of very minimal effects of unions mm. uh, on average. Um, and so my, my first thought was, okay, maybe the average effect is quite small, but maybe there's like large but offsetting effects of different parts of the distribution. Oh. So kind of think, thinking about distributional effects is what got me interested in labor. And then that kind of was, has and continues to be a big part of like my econometric research today. Is thinking so even in that early journal of income distribution, you were thinking about distributional questions, just not. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but not treatment effects. Not treatment effects. That's right. But, but still thinking about. But thinking about these di of distribution, heterogeneity in a, in a population. That's right. Yeah. And you see that is connected to labor too, not just pure econometrics, but like those were labor questions. Those were relevant labor questions. Yeah, that's right. So at the, they were relevant labor questions, um, you know, kind of the you think about the biggest change in the labor markets over the past 30 years and there's you know big institutional changes like the decline of unions yeah uh, or you know changes in minimum wage things like that and most of those are you know like where they really bite is what do they do to the distribution of outcomes. yeah right 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 yeah that's really classical too you know i mean i think like the the thing is i mean these, these questions of inequality within a prosperous society are like from the very, very beginning. Um, you know, the, the other thing that's been impressing me about this history of thought class that, I mean, it's like really kind of obvious, but like until you see these old guys do it, for some reason you didn't really notice it was, um, was they were so focused on, they were really, a lot of them were really concerned about, you know, peep, they were concerned about people but they were weird because they would do so much technical, even abstract, deeply mathematical work about people. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because that's you too, right? You have all this high, you're a labor economist and, but you're, and as I said, but, but, and you're this highly technical abstract econometrician too. And that fits in your work with labor, right? Can you tell me a little bit more about like for the sake of somebody that doesn't really know anything about economics or labor, how would those two things even go together? Yeah, I think they do. They do go together. And um, 
you know, like when you get involved with, um, you know, thinking about distributions and, and thinking about treatment effects, um, it, it quickly becomes, uh, you know, a challenge like econometrically or, you know, empirically to try to identify these effects on distributions. They're, you know, it's just inherently more involved than thinking about average effects. And so the kind of mathematical tools that you need to tackle distributional questions are just going to be a bit more uh, a bit more involved in what you need to tackle uh, averages, um, and then doing so, you know, the traditional way that economists have dealt with distributions is by you know making strong assumptions about the functional form of things. You know, we'll assume such and such is log normal, or you know, something else is you know extreme value type two or whatever it is. Um, but there you're kind of you're kind of baking in the answer that you're going to find when you make these really strong assumptions. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. So like a, a big priority, I think, for this line of research and for me is to be able to tackle distributional questions, uh, you know, which I think are really fundamental questions in labor economics for society having to do with inequality, but to do so with without having to make like really strong, you know, maybe artificial assumptions. Yeah. And like um, to make headway without making it. Because really you feel like questions. if you make these really strong distribution, like, so you sort of a priori start saying, I'm going to make, I'm going to make these assumptions. Economists were doing that because then things become, then you can, things become tractable, but you're yeah, sort of thinking, tractable. but you're thinking they, they're, they comes at a really high price because it's, it's obscuring what could be true. Is, is that, is that right? That's absolutely right. And with, with any research, and this isn't just economics, like the number one question we should be asking ourselves is to what extent are the conclusions driven by like the assumptions yeah. that we've baked in? And to what extent are they driven by, you know, what the data is trying to tell us? Right. And if you can make headway with, without making strong assumptions, then mm. you can have more faith that the conclusions you're drawing are really what, what the data are telling you mm. and, and not what you're baked in by making assumptions. So that's been that's been a priority for me in, in my research. And, you know, and I think a lot of modern econometrics is trying to make headway in this same direction. What can we say, you know, stripping out some of the strong assumptions that we used to make in the past? And it turns out it's, it's, it's harder. It's a harder mathematical and econometric challenge to make mm. headway when you, when you don't have all these assumptions that can kind of provide structure. Mm. Um, but, but I think it's, I think that's been a big area of progress though in the past few years in econometrics so this is prod this is is it is it correct to say that this work of yours on bounds on bounding is it is it is is it um and bounds and this kind of like you know less assumptions approach to the distribution of these treatment effects is that primarily with Lars Lefgren has he been your primary yes. co-author on that kind of research agenda yeah, yeah, he has been. My, and Lars is my colleague here at BYU. Um, okay. And, and it's very much in this in this vein. Um, as soon as you start stripping away, you know, some of our assumptions that we might have made in the past, mm -hmm. like you you might lose. You know, there's trade-offs to everything. So when you strip away an assumption, you might lose the ability to like to pin down. Uh, you know, to point identify, as we say, but to, right. to pin down the exact answer to a question. But uh -huh. what you might be able to do is to put an upper and lower bound. So here's, here's an example. Um, so a paper that we have, it looks at uh, charter schools. And 
charter schools in some cases have been spectacularly successful. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but the question you ask is, okay, maybe some students really benefit from charter schools, but maybe some students are harmed by charter schools and might do better in a traditional setting. Yeah. So even though charter schools might, you know, certain charter schools might be really successful on average, we want to know, you know, what fraction of students might actually be harmed, what fraction of students benefit from charter schools. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of one of these basic distributional questions that we talked about before. Yeah. Um, and it turns out, like, even a question that simple, what fraction of students, you know, are, might be harmed by some intervention, like, without making really, really strong assumptions, it's not a question that you can answer in an exact way, but you can put an upper and lower bound. We can say, you know, um, at most, this fraction of students were harmed by, uh, by charter schools, you know, and if we're able to say that at most 1% of students were harmed by charter schools, well, then we've learned something. Sure, yeah. we haven't been able to pin down what the exact percentage is, but we've learned something valuable if you're able to put a bound uh, on what the effect might be, that's informative. Mm -hmm. And um, so as soon as you're willing to kind of embrace ambiguity that way and, and be okay with bounds, it turns out you can actually get a, you can, you can remove quite a few of your assumptions and just kind of let the data. Let what the were data people start. doing before this, put this paper with Lefkren? I mean, I think about like, you know, I, I, everybody, everybody knows, not everybody knows, but like, you know, there's work by Mansky and partial identification. Like what exactly is the value added approach to what y'all are doing? So be, before our paper, there were kind of two basic approaches. On one extreme is Mansky, mm -hmm. um, as you mentioned. And uh, actually, I, I really, uh, I, I, uh, I really find Mansky's approach appealing, which is let's not make any assumptions that we can't explicitly justify. Mm. Um, but uh, you know, and I, I respect that. Oftentimes, though, what you arrive at is really, really wide bounds. It turns like you, you can't really say much about anything if, um, you know, if you strip away so many assumptions. So that's kind of right. one extreme, like really wide bounds that aren't informative. The other extreme is the opposite. Let's make a lot of really strong assumptions. So one strong assumption is what they call, you know, rank invariance or something. Mm -hmm. which, that does allow you to pin down answers to questions like what fraction of students might have been hurt or harmed by charter schools. Yeah. But these, these really strong assumptions put, uh, they, they assume away a lot of heterogeneity and they, um, and, and then you, want, you wonder how much of my conclusion is being drawn by this really strong assumption. Yeah. So those were kind of the two approaches, either make super strong assumptions that you probably don't believe or make really, really weak assumptions that don't tell you anything. Yeah. And we, we hope we've been able to, to bridge that gap by is there like a core concept that I should like be taking away from this work with Lars that's like rank invariance or something that's like something I can remember? Uh, yeah, so the 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 core concept, you know, we call it it has a terrible name, stochastic increasingness. But um, oh yeah, that that's intimidating. But, <laughs> yeah. but basically, basically, what um the assumption that allows us to make headway is to say, okay, we don't know how. Like, okay, the, the fundamental problem of causality, of course, is that you don't get to see a given individual in both states of the world where they attended charter schools or at the same time attended a traditional school. You only get to see one or the other, right? That's kind of the fundamental problem of, of causal inference. But we can make an assumption about those two states of the world. We can say, okay, students who, if, uh, students who tended to do better in, you know, in charter schools, if we can say, 
like um, students who tended to do better in charter schools would not necessarily have done better in traditional schools, but on average would have done better in traditional schools mm -hmm. um, than students who, who fared worse uh, in charter schools. Uh, that actually allows us to, to put pretty informative bounds on things. Mm. Um, so this How'd y'all get that idea? Where'd that come from? Um, y'all just sit so and talk about that? This, this concept of stochastic increasingness, you know, it's, it's been around, it, it's, it's been floating around in old school, like statistics texts for a long time. I'm looking up my shelf at the, the book that it was in. Um, it's, it's a very weak notion of correlation. It's like, it's, mm. a, it's, it's related to positive correlation, but weaker. And applying it to like distributional questions, uh, you know, it, just Lars Lefkren and I batting ideas around, you know, mostly taking walks in the mountains up around campus. That's where we do our best thinking. Mm. Uh, you know, it just seemed to us like a pretty reasonable assumption. It's one that you can actually test. Um, oh. And uh, and so we we gave it a go, and it turned out like just imposing just that one assumption actually allowed us to. Uh, to narrow the bounds and really like home in on answers to these distributional questions. Well, so if you were talk, if you could like, you know, somebody that's listening to the, on the podcast and they're like, I wonder if I need to care about this stuff that Brigham and Lars are working on, but they don't know how to recognize immediately from what you've just said that they should be paying more attention. What What's kind of like the big applied questions that you would say, and if you're doing this kind of thing, you need you, you might be someone who would really benefit from this kind of making the fixed cost investment to kind of learn a little bit more about, you know, bounds. Like who who are the likely candidates at the extensive margin that don't know they need this? Yeah, so I think people who um, people who are interested in in like the impacts of of like policy interventions and who are especially concerned about um, whether some people might be harmed and some people might be hurt Got it. By, by policy interventions. Um, that Those are the kind of people who I, I, I think could um, benefit from understanding what our work is and then maybe even using it in their own policy evaluation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thinking, so it's like you, you've got to, so you've got to be probably working, working on something where you sort of have an a priori reason to think there's kind of some, downside potentially to the treatment that at least is worth kind of digging into a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Right. So before we kind of end, you know, th this other thing that you've been working on, which you haven't really mentioned, and, and I guess you're just, you're just kind of a Renaissance kind of econ man, econometrician. You've also been doing all this stuff on machine learning, or at least you've like made the, you've made the big investment in that. Um, you know, machine learning is kind of, kind of funny because I always kind of think like the, the people that have used so much of it outside of econ, they've used it for kind of traditional prediction questions. Um, and I used to kind of think, well, causal inference really isn't about prediction. It, it you know, but the more that I've thought about causal inference, it, it is kind of about prediction because you're predicting counterfactuals. And if you correct, you know, if you correctly predict a counterfactual, well, then you also could maybe even predict the future too. But, but I was wondering, how do you think about how machine learning and causal inference go together? I mean, because they've not been traditionally, it's not like that. It's not like the, the pioneers of it were necessarily using it in the way that you sort of see it potentially, right? 
Yeah, that's right. So I see the, the introduction of these machine learning tools and econometrics as kind of following the, the same vein as we've seen in economics before. Like if you look at the recent history of economics, it's a history of like seeing that ideas in other disciplines mm. can be super useful in economics. So think about psychology. Think about what an influence, like a lot of ideas that were original in psychology now mm. have on behavioral economics. Yeah. And I think the same thing is true um, for computer science. So economists, you know, kind of recently have looked over at computer scientists or statisticians and said, hey, they're actually doing some really neat stuff over there. They're not directly trying to answer the same questions we're trying to answer. Mm -hmm. but they're developing tools that can be really useful for us. And so I think a lot of econ uh, economists and econometricians have realized that um, prediction, even if prediction isn't directly answering the kind of questions that we're interested in answering, you know, causal effects, things like that, mm -hmm. prediction can be used as a valuable input to answer mm -hmm. these questions. So and if you think about, you know, our, make, our most basic econometric tool, which is a regression, you know, where we control for a bunch of covariates, mm -hmm. like you can cast that as a prediction problem, like the, the way, you know, multiple regression works, you can think of it as we're going to predict our outcome with all these covariates, we're going right. to predict our treatment with all these covariates, and we're going to, you know, in the end, like adjust our estimate of the treatment effects um, to account for um, uh, you know, the relationship with all these covariates. And so we recognize that even these pure prediction problems can be used as inputs uh, into the econometric process. And ultimately, you know, the hope is um, make our analysis more robust, less dependent on, you know, functional form assumptions. Right. Um, grapple with problems of overfitting that we've really kind of ignored in econometrics, but turn out can be a big deal. The weak instruments literature, the many instruments literature is kind of recognize that overfitting is something that we as economists should be thinking about. Computer scientists have been thinking about that for a long time and have a lot to teach us. Right, 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 right. I was still though, you know, I saw, I saw your paper with Josh Angerist and, and you were looking at, um, you know, you were looking up, I thought at machine at sort of a, you know, using machine learning in, in combination with instrumental variables. And it seems like the paper, you're a little bit more ambivalent about the usefulness of machine learning for IV, and I was I was I was surprised because I I knew of Ch uh, Victor Chernyshkov's work that kind of had sort of bridged them, and I guess I was just you know I don't know enough about all of the areas of IV and machine learning, but I was just wondering you know just at a high level I guess for the sake of the reader what 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 was that study about with Josh and and you know what 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 can you tell us about it. Yeah, so we, we looked at kind of two areas where machine learning might be promising um, to, to like help with uh, econometric inference. One of those is instrumental variables, IV, and the other one is kind of traditional regression with controls. Yeah. And we kind of got two different messages from these two different areas. So um, instrumental variables, you know, one way machine learning could be used there is to help pick your instruments. Yeah. Um, or to, you know, to help over to basically to do the first stage, which is a prediction problem. Right. Um, and it, it, yeah, so think about bias of two stage least squares when you have many instruments. Mm -hmm. Machining does, it does help to bias. It just doesn't help as much as some tools that we already have. We already like have what? tools like, or so like well, limited, lim limited information, maximum likelihood is a tool that's kind of already been around. 
um, tools like uh, jackknife instrumental variables or split sample IV. It turns out those, those already do a pretty darn good job. And in fact, especially like jackknife IV, it, it actually uses some important um, like concepts from the machine learning uh, field, like uh, splitting your sample, not using the same observations for uh, training your model as prediction. So we had kind of already absorbed those lessons and mm. kind of solved the problem already. And there, there really wasn't any more benefit to kind of bringing in last or other things. At least that's, that's what we found. Is it just a problem of not a benefit or is it also a problem of like, there's also like additional biases that are something that it might do? There, there are some additional biases. So when you use these machine learning tools, they're not free, you know, like, so for example, it comes with its own set of assumptions like sparsity mm. um, that need to be true for it to work. So it's, it's not free. And if those assumptions aren't satisfied, then, then they can actually uh, mm. cause some cause. And mm. so on, on net, like kind of our existing ways of dealing with uh, these problems of instrumental variables bias ended up being superior to to bring in these machine learning tools. Mm, mm. Um, so that was our, our kind of conclusion for Ivy. But for, for regression control, actually we found that machine learning um, was, was a very fruitful way to kind of gauge robustness to functional form, uh, mm. to help grapple with uh, the problem of many covariates and, mm. uh, and ended up you know, uh, proving to us to be a, a pretty promising tool. Yeah, so you, so you feel like I mean, uh, your overall feeling about machine learning being useful for causal inference, I mean, and for applied workers in general, I mean, do, do you, do you um, uh, feel like there's, it's worth a person's time to sort of invest in these things? Because it's always Absolutely. so expensive. It's so expensive to learn anything. There, there, there's fixed costs to, you know, developing a new set of tools. Um, I think it absolutely is, is worth it. I think um, uh, machine learning tools that have been developing in computer science do have a lot to offer uh, both academic economists, but especially economists who might find themselves working kind of outside of academia. Totally. Uh, dealing with big data alone, you know, yep. um, uh, like learning some of the tools um, uh, for dealing with big data, I think are a valuable, uh, valuable addition to the toolkit for economists everywhere. And it's, you know, just like we saw, like psychology added so much to economics, I think machine learning tools are going to add a lot to econometrics. Awesome. The methods are here to stay. Well, it's top of the hour. I, I really appreciate this time. It was really nice uh, getting to talk. And um, uh, uh, thanks so much for, for letting me get to learn a little bit more about your, your life and your work. Great talking to you, Scott. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye.